Our Father, the Scriptures tell us, you tell us, in Acts 14, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We are very blessed. We have much favor in our lives. We have experienced much grace and uh, mercy and peace because of the good news of the gospel, that our sins can be forgiven, that you have a plan for our lives, that you will steer us and navigate us through all the days of our lives and the chapters of our lives. But that doesn't mean we're pain-free. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that we don't have hardship and um, difficulty and just flat-out things we wish weren't there, but they are. And it's there are seasons that we've all experienced just of unusual favor, and we thank you for those seasons. But that's not the normal Christian life. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You oversee, you oversee the favor that is dispensed, and you dispense it, and you oversee even the tribulations, because you're sovereign over all things. And these uh, tribulations, when they stack up, when they keep coming, and we get blindsided and get knocked down, and then we get up and then get blindsided again, and then another, and then another, we start to wonder. But as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, you remember our affliction in Asia when we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. I mean, Paul was just at the end of his rope. And utterly discouraged. But he goes on to say that the reason that occurred was that he might learn not to trust in himself, but in the God who raises the dead. When we think we're finished, we're not. When we think it's over, it isn't. Uh, You work in our lives in strange ways. You work through the times of prosperity, and you work through the times of adversity. But you work. We have guys in different places in their lives right now. We would especially pray for the guys that are going through the hard, hard, dark times, that you'd encourage them, you'd let them know you're with them, that you would remind them of your promises, that you'll never leave them or forsake them. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope and wait for his loving kindness. And as old Obadiah Sedgwick used to say 300 years ago, when God delays a mercy, he often doubles the mercy. You did it with Job. Everything he lost, you gave him back double. You're a good God. You know what we need for our journey home. And yeah, we get discouraged, but sometimes you absolutely shock us with your mercy. Help us to keep that perspective. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Second Peter, working our way through this epistle that is often ignored and uh, along with its cousin Jude, J-U-D-E, not one you often hear taught, but one that is very necessary and critical for days like ours. 
as I was looking over this first chapter, we've been taking small bites, a couple verses at a time. Tonight we're going to take a larger chunk. And uh, as I was looking at this chapter, this first chapter, I was reminded of uh, John Coulter. John Coulter, I first read about John Coulter when I was in uh, Cub Scouts. I was eight years old. And there was a magazine called Boy's Life. I'd never heard of John Coulter. But once I read it, I never forgot John Coulter. In fact, I included his story in a book I did a long time ago called Finishing Strong. John Coulter was, um, he was on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And you know all about that. And all of those men returned back except two. One of, one of those who didn't go back to civilization was John Coulter because he was smitten with everything he saw in this vast, amazing country. He was smitten. They saw some amazing things, but off on the horizon, wherever they were, there was something else over the horizon that they didn't see. So he decided he was going to go check it all out, and he did. And for years and years, he was just by himself. He was the first white man to go into Yellowstone. He was just enamored by it all. At a certain point, one of his uh, colleagues from the Lewis and Clark expedition, somehow they'd arranged to meet. This guy's name was John Potts. And so... Coulter was showing him some of the stuff he discovered in the ensuing, in the years in between. They were on a, they were on a canoe going down a river, and um, they were ambushed by some Blackfeet Indians. Through it, um, his friend was killed. Uh, Coulter, and he, he was killed because he tried to paddle away and Colton said, don't paddle. We, we, need to, we need to, they've got us, we need to get off and fight them because they respect bravery. And Coulter got out and went to face this big brave and Potts started paddling and they, uh, they killed him with arrows. Uh, Coulter was able to throw this guy and uh, take his lance away from him and they respected that. But he knew they were still going to kill him. And he knew that they were deciding how to kill him. They tended to kill slowly. And as they are debating, a ch the chief indicated to him by sign language, are you a fast runner? And he said, no, I am slow like a turtle. But actually, he was fast like a deer. He couldn't believe his good fortune. So they set up a race. And they'd chosen certain braves. Each brave had a weapon. They gave Coulter, they stripped him naked. They gave him a 300-yard head start. Uh, no weapon. Go. And he was literally running for his life. He, he ran, and he ran, and he ran, and he was outrunning them, except for a couple of guys. At the three-mile mark, according to his journal, he had blood, not only coming from his feet, but out of his nose and out of his mouth, because he was running for his life. At about the four-mile mark, he looked back, and there was one guy left. He'd outrun them all. And this guy had a lance. And as he kept running, he realized he had, to, he had to, so he stopped, and it shocked this guy who was behind him, and he took the lance and threw it at him, missed him. Coulter was able to get the lance and run him through. And then he turned, and he saw off in the distance, tree line, had to be a creek, a river. He made it, dove into the freezing water, burrowed in under a raft of logs, abandoned beaver, 
dam, he burrowed in and could get his head up for air. And they tracked him, and he was in there for hours and hours and hours. They actually walked on top of it, but they couldn't find him. And when they finally left, here's the description. That terrible day, however, was still young, and the Blackfeet were wild to avenge the death of their comrade. They kept up the hunt until late afternoon before withdrawing. Under cover of darkness, John Coulter swam downstream until he found a tiny stretch of bark concealed by trees and brush, naked, half-frozen, and nearly delirious from exposure and loss of blood. Coulter pulled himself out of the stream and lay gasping on the bank. He had no rifle, no food, no fire, no horse, no shoes, and no clothing. He had been stripped of everything except his will to live. John Coulter was half dead and 150 miles away from the trading post at Bighorn. Yet seven days later, he walked naked, bleeding, and hungry into the Bighorn compound. In that moment, he became a living legend. True story. John Coulter. In the race of his life. Second Peter 1 is about the fact that we're in a race. We're in a spiritual race. Uh, Peter was about to complete his spiritual race. I got a five-point outline tonight. This is a big chunk of scripture that we're going to look at tonight. We've already looked at verses one uh, down through four. We're going to go down tonight uh, really through verse 12. But I want to include in what we read verses 13, 14, and 15 And you'll see why in a minute. Let me go ahead and give you the structure of the outline, then we'll go back and work our way through it. So, interestingly enough, the passage that comes first that we're going to look at is 2 Peter 1, verses 13 through 15. And the point of that is, the first point is, Peter is about to finish his race, his spiritual race. We'll come back to that in a minute. Secondly, Peter is instructing us how to run the race. That's verses 10 through 12. So I'm kind of working backwards here in the text. Then, thirdly, Peter instructs us that God has already given us everything we need to run the race. That's verses 3 and 4. Fourth point would include verses 5 through 9. Peter instructs us about the spiritual vitamins that we must have to run the race. And then number 5, in verse 10, Peter instructs us that practice makes progress Not perfect. The old adage, practice makes perfect, not in this life. Not in this spiritual race. Practice makes progress, not perfection. Perfection comes when we die to be with the Lord. So, with that in mind, let's look at the first point. Peter is about to finish his race. We've gone over this before. If you look at verses 13, 14, and 15, he says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. So all the way through this book, he's reminding them of certain critical truths that they need to know. Uh, 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. Uh, Earthly dwelling is his body. How does he know his time on earth, his time running the race on earth is about to end. Well, the next line, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So in some way, shape, or form, the Lord has told him, yeah, you're in this persecution that Nero has instituted among the people of God. 
uh, and it's going to bring you to your death. He knew that. So this persecution with Nero went on from like AD 64 to 68. Nero died in 68. This was probably written around 67. He died under Nero. Paul died under Nero. So he knew his time was short. He goes on in verse 15, and I will also be diligent that at, that, at, that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. So I'm checking out, I'm going to be with the Lord, but after I'm gone, I want you guys to know these things because you're gonna need to know them because you're in the race. And it's intense and it's hot and it's difficult and you're gonna get worn out. The thing about a long race is they're exhausting. This isn't a sprint. The Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is, uh, is a marathon. The Christian life is an ultra marathon. Anybody can run a sprint. To run a sprint, all you need is speed, uh, a fast start, and steroids. That's all you need. But to run a long race, a marathon, or an ultra marathon, I've told you about the guy I met who uh, ran the ultra marathons, 100 mile races without stopping. That's insane. But see, that's the Christian life. Flip over just to the left a couple of books to Hebrews 12. Therefore, verse 1, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the men who are in uh, Hebrews 11 is God's hall of fame. To get in God's hall of fame, uh, it's God's hall of faith. So the men who lived and women who lived their lives ran the race by faith, by faith. Uh, Hebrews eleven six and without faith it's impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And then to twelve therefore summing up what's in chapter eleven about these men of faith therefore since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us because those guys have gone on to be with the Lord let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. By the way, where Romans 8 says he lives forever to make intercession for us. So as we're running the race, what is needed in this race that is long and hard and difficult, what is needed is endurance. By the way, how do you get endurance? That's kind of important. The guy that I knew that ran the 100-mile races would get up six days a week, about 4 o'clock, and before breakfast, he'd run 20 miles. Before breakfast. Um, That's crazy. That is, uh, that's unique. Because when you get up at four o'clock every morning and you run 20 miles, you're gonna encounter pain. You're asking for pain. You're inviting pain into your life. But now that you're in Hebrews, just go one book to the right and look at James 1, verse two. Count it joy, my brethren. Consider it joy. Think it as joy. It doesn't say feel it as joy, emotionally, but consider it, think it as joy when you encounter various trials. You've got trials, I've got trials. We tend not to consider them as joyful. You've gotta take a step back. You really got to get you, you, you really got to get into the scriptures and get the scriptures in you to be able to take a step back and look at difficult, hard stuff in your life that you don't want there and think it is joy. How in the world can you do that? Again, not feeling it is joy. Think it is joy when you encounter 
various trials. Now watch this. Here's the mind again. Knowing. Knowing. The Christian life is, is not a feeling thing. We have feelings, but feelings can't be central. It's, it's rational. It's logical. It's facts. It's facts that God has laid out. And if you believe the facts and you act upon them, that's called faith. There's nothing blind about it. He says in Isaiah, come let us reason together. Think this through with me. Knowing that the testing, how can I count something as joy? How can I consider something as joy when I encounter various trials? Knowing that the testing of my faith, oh, that's what's going on. My faith is being tested, yes. And what's the value of that? I don't want my faith being tested. Well, but you need your faith being tested. Why? Well, because the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do you run 100 miles without stopping? Endurance. How do you get endurance? Through trials. You develop endurance through suffering. That's how it is. Same thing in the Christian life. So we're looking at Peter here. Peter's about to finish his race, and Peter is finishing strong. But Peter is writing because he wants us to finish strong. Uh, There are three ways you can finish in the Christian life you can finish poorly. You can finish so-so, kind of an average finish. As you get older, you just kind of put it on cruise control. You lose your zeal. You lose your, uh, your energy for the Lord. You lose, you start compromising. Um, that's kind of a so-so finish. But not everyone finishes strong. We want to finish strong. Peter finished strong. Second point. Peter instructs us how to run the race. He instructs us how to run the race. Uh, This is verses 10 and 12. So if you'll notice, I really am in this passage in 2 Peter, uh, I, I really am starting at the end and working our way back. And you can see how he's building his argument. So he has just told them in what, 13 through 15? I'm about to finish the race. You guys are still in the race. Now you get to 10 and 12. He wants to make sure of something that's very important. He says this. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, what things? The things we haven't looked at yet in the previous verses, but will in a minute. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You will never fall. Um, this chapter has some context to it. It, um, it has some background to it. Now, Peter is at the end of his life. He's at the end of the race. He's finishing strong. He he was a tremendous leader. He was a man of great courage. He, um, church tradition tells us that his wife was first crucified before he was. And he had to watch that. And then he was crucified, but he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord. He asked to be crucified upside down, which they did. That takes guts, that takes courage. Um, But Peter had not always been that way. The key word there, he says in verse 10, if you practice these things, if you're diligent, you will never fall. Peter had a great fall, a tremendous fall. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 26. You know this story. 
This is not just Peter's story, it's our stories. So who was Peter? Well, he's a fisherman. He's a, he's a big, aggressive, blue-collar, get-it-done kind of guy, you know, not, a, not an academic, not a, he's out there fishing. And I mean, he's out there early, and he, he does what it takes to get the job done. He's bold, he's aggressive, he's brash. We love Peter. Why do we love Peter? Because he's like us. Peter had foot and mouth disease. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was always, you know, he, uh, it was just Peter. We love him because he reminds us of us. He was a guy that, uh, well, you know, if, if you're going to take a city, if you're going to have a war, Peter will be the first guy over the wall. But then he probably will have second thoughts because he hadn't counted the cost. It was just Peter. He was impulsive. They came to get Jesus in the garden. Peter pulls out his sword, whacks the guy's ear off. Dawned on me one day, I don't think Peter was aiming for his ear. I think Peter wanted to take his head off, but he hadn't been in the spring training that year. Jesus picked up the guy's ear, put it back on. It's in that context of the, the Last Supper in the night that he was betrayed in Matthew 26 notes if you would 26 while they were eating Jesus took bread after a blessing he broke it and gave it to the disciples and he said take eat this is my body so you get the context verse 30 after singing a hymn they went out to the Mount of Olives 31 here we go then Jesus said to them you will all fall away same word that's in 1 Peter 1.10. You will all fall. You will all stumble. Let me get back to 31. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. They didn't get that. And then in verse 33, Peter said to him, even though... Lord, Lord, hey, all these guys, look, even if all these guys fall away, I won't. Here's what he, exactly what he said. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Every one of us have experienced that. Because when we're young, we tend to be full of ourselves. We tend to be very uh, self-sufficient, confident in our gifts and abilities. And well, see, that's a recipe for disaster. If you want to be used by God, that cannot be how you operate. So God takes guys like that and he lets them fall hard, hard. Even though all may fall away, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. There's no way, Lord, there's no possible way we're gonna deny you. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, Jesus had been arrested, and a servant girl, a little girl, came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl, another little girl, not some Roman centurion, a little girl, came to him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus. And again, he denied it with an oath. I did, I did not know the man. I don't know the man. A little later, bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. So then he begins to talk not like one of them. 
he began to curse and swear. He began to swear a blue streak from his pre-Christ days. I do not know the man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a master crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly because he failed. He denied the Lord. He stumbled. And he thought it was over. Go to Luke 22, if you would. He's having a dialogue with Jesus in Luke 22. Simon Peter is. And verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, will strengthen your brothers. The man who said he would never fall, the man who said he would never deny, he fell. He fell greatly. He fell deeply uh, to the point that he thought it was over. In the providence of God and in the goodness of God, Peter, who was about to finish the race, and face a crucifixion, will not deny Christ. He will finish strong because he has been strengthened. And in this letter, he is strengthening the brethren. Just what Jesus said. And he strengthens us who are reading this 2,000 years later. The scriptures are remarkable, aren't they? This isn't just Peter's story. It's my story and it's your story. In the scriptures, you have this, um, you have this pathway of great failure, and we think we're done, and we think we're finished, and we have ruined our lives, and we have, we have absolutely blown the grace of God that we have received and the goodness of God, and we have absolutely ruined our lives and we think it's over and we think there's no recovery and Jesus is at the right hand of the father the whole time there are people I know and love who know the truth who are away from the truth I pray Luke 22 for them almost every day. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, and they are being sifted. They're away from the Lord. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith might remain and that when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. Man, those are great words. There's your hope. There's your hope. Oh, I've sinned too many times. I've failed too many times. You can't do it. You, just, you can't do it. We'll, we'll fail. We'll fail again. This is personal to Peter. This is real to Peter. I think what you've got here is, is a man facing death who looks back over his life. He's not afraid of death. He, he knows where he's going. He, I, I think he marvels at the goodness of God. He, marvel, he, he just he marveled at it. Couldn't get over it. How do you think Peter felt? He went out and, and he wept bitterly and then... Jesus is put on the cross, he's crucified, he's put into the tomb. How do you think, you don't see Peter anywhere during that time. He's off by himself, he's ashamed, he's embarrassed, he's hiding out, he's, it's over. He knew the Lord, I denied him, it's over for me. It's, it's, 
I'm another Judas. I didn't betray him like Judas, but I might as well have. You think Satan was working him over or what? Go to Mark. Don't you love studying 2 Peter? Let's see, it all ties in together. Uh, then go to Mark 16. So after Jesus has been buried, they go to the tomb. Sixteen one. when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him very early on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb. When the sun had risen, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, though it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man, an angel, sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. He said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Here is the place where they laid him. But go, watch this, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Is that great or what? Peter thought it was done. He, he thought it was over. He was cooked. He was finished. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why? I'm not done with Peter. Now I can use the guy. He's failed. He's fallen. Over the years, you know, I've talked with different guys, different contexts, different situations. I've had a lot of conversations where guys have said to me with deep, deep regret and remorse and tears, I ruined my life, I screwed up, I, I felt like the Lord would, wanted to use me and I resisted and I did this and I did this and I, I've ruined my life, it's, it's over. And I've come back to him, but it, I had a desire to be used by God. But there's no chance of that. And they felt just like Peter. And I'll say something to this effect that so you think because all you did and the failures and all this that God can never use you. Yeah, I'm a failure. So my question is, you're a failure. Who else does God have to choose from? If you're not a failure, raise your hand. But before you do, know that if you raise your hand, you just failed. <laughs> See, this is the gospel right here. Isn't it? Is this great or what? <laughs> Peter's probably wondering if he's saved. Peter's probably wondering if he belongs to the Lord. Peter's probably wondering if he's going to even go to heaven. He deserves hell. I mean, wouldn't you be feeling that way? Oh, I think so. If you denied Christ three times and fallen like that? Third point. This would be verses three and four. Peter instructs us that God has given us everything we need to run the race. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we looked at it last week. But going back to 2 Peter 1, we said last week that we don't, as believers, we don't have to seek after certain experiences or this or that or this. Because verses 3 and 4, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Whatever you need for the race has already been given to you. So, um, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. That term there, having escaped, that's a reference to... Um, now you're saved. You've been redeemed. The reason he says we've been given everything, we've been given two things back in Second Peter. 
We've already been given two things. Number one, you look at verses three and four, verse three, we've been given the knowledge of God. The knowledge of, of the person of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter had the privilege of walking, traveling, journeying with Christ for three years. 24-7, he was with him. He knew him. He knew him. He had interaction with him. He knew him. Wouldn't it be great to know him like that? We get to know him as we walk through life, opening our Bibles and trusting him and calling upon him. And when we get in trouble, oh, the second thing that he's given us is not just the knowledge of God, but the precious promises. How do, you pull, how do you get through a deep and dark time where you've lost all hope and you don't see any way out? The promises, the promises of God. We'll see in our study in weeks coming that this book of 2 Peter, of all the books in the New Testament, is the most savagely attacked New Testament book in regard to its authenticity. You can read commentaries. Peter didn't write this book. Well, he said he, he, said, he, said he wrote it. Well, the vocabulary is different. Or it's not just, not just like First Peter. It's, they got all these, okay. None of them make sense. Why is it so savagely attacked? Well, you get into the next chapter and he's gonna talk about uh, the transfiguration. We're on the mount with Jesus and suddenly, boom, there's Moses and Elijah. And who was it that said, oh, Lord, Jesus. Who was it that spoke up? Who do you think? Peter, everybody else is in awe. Well, hey, I got an idea, Jesus. Let's get a building committee and let's, be, let's build three tabernacles and boom. Zip it up, punk, to use the Aramaic. <laughs> Shut up. And suddenly... It was just Jesus transfigured. He saw that. He saw it. He never forgot it. The critics came along and said, well, no, he didn't really write it. He did write it. He saw it. He was an eyewitness. Why would they attack it? Because he also talks about the promises, and Satan doesn't want us believing that the promises can be trusted. But if you don't trust the promises, you've got no hope to get through the hard and dark places. You've got nothing to get you through if you don't have the promises of God. That's it. You've got nothing left. I mean, that's it. But I'll tell you, the promises of God will pull you through anything. Anything. Stuff you never thought you could survive even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Psalm 46.1, I quoted it last week. God is a refuge and strength. The very present help in trouble. New American Standard Version, alternative translation. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. And he will pull you through tight places. I was on the phone with somebody in the parking lot before I walked in here who called me. I knew their circumstances. I took the call. God has just pulled them through. <sighs> they were getting killed. It was disrupting their family, their marriage. all those months of waiting and disappointment and delay and denial and and I might have said this in the prayer as Obadiah Sedgwick once said when God delays a mercy he often doubles the mercy and they were telling me how God had doubled the mercy so in my interaction with them by text what am I doing I'm shooting them promises. This guy is at the same stage of life that I was in 
when I went through my deepest and darkest depression. How did I get through that? The promises. He's given us what we need, guys. Is, is, the, is the race hard right now? You got busted ribs? Did you tear your Achilles? You can't get your breath? He's right there with you. And when you can't run, he'll carry you. Deuteronomy 1, God said in Deuteronomy 1, I carried you like a father carries his little boy. And when you're so weak you can't move, Jesus just carries you. When you're in a hospital bed, you can't even take a breath. Jesus just carries you. This is real. This is Christianity. The fourth principle is this. Peter instructs us about the spiritual vitamins that we must take to run the race. Now, what is this vitamin stuff? So let's look at beginning with verse 5. Now, for this very reason, also, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now that's a chunk of information that's critical. Um, I like the way the uh, English Standard Version puts this. It, it takes verse 5 and it translates it this way. Now for this very reason also make every effort to supplement your faith. You guys take any supplements? Yeah, you got the vitamin E and the probiotics and the, yeah, yeah okay. Supplements. There are spiritual supplements for the race. Uh, you say, wait a minute. I, no, wait a minute. I thought salvation was a gift and it, it's all grace and it's all mercy. And it's, Yeah, it is. But there's a part, there's a responsibility that we have. We are given salvation. We are given a gift. God wants to use us. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. But then 10 says, For we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for good works, not good works to be saved. You were saved in verse 8 by grace. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God saves me. It's sheer grace. It's sheer mercy. It's a gift from God. But now what the Lord wants to do is he wants to grow me up and he wants to mature me because he has, he has work for me to do for the kingdom. You say, well, what is it? I don't know. You, you only know by looking backwards. He's given you gifts and skills and a, a sphere of influence, a group of people, a family, a job, geographical boundaries in which you live. He wants to use you for his glory. But in order to be used, see, he, it's like you have a baby and everyone's so excited and for nine months you're talking about the birth, the birth, the birth, you know. And then the baby's born. After the baby's born, nobody's talking about birth. They're talking about growth. And you go to the doctor and they check the kid's vitals and, you know, the weight and the whole thing because they want to make sure there's growth. Same thing here. Same thing here. So when you become a Christian, when, when the gospel gets a hold of you and you call upon the name of Jesus to save you from your sin and say, Lord, come into my life, show me the kind of man you want me to be. And now, now you're going to start growing, you see, and you want to be used by God. Um, So, Steve, are you saying there's stuff that 
we need to do? I'm not saying it. He's saying it. After you're saved. Are you sure? Well, same thing in Philippians 2. Why don't we turn over there? You know this verse. Philippians 2, 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, work out your what? Salvation. How did you get salvation? God gave it to you. But the salvation that he has given to you, he wants you to work it out. He wants you to exercise it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what he wants me to do is not just say, oh, I've been saved and I trusted in Christ, you know, when I was six years old, and then I just sit on my tail. And some Christians are just mouth. They're just mouth. They're just one giant mouth. They're always talking. And they'll even talk spiritual language, and they'll even talk, use spiritual vocabulary, but it's all mouth. And there's nothing inside. You see. And because they're always talking about God and scriptures and, you know, you think they're real and you think they're genuine. Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus um, puts a spotlight on people that are all mouth. Jesus says in 720, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. By all appearances, and he, he doesn't deny that they did certain things in his name. He doesn't deny it. He just says, I never knew you. Because they're all mouth. But there's no life. There's no growth. There's no growth of the inner man. There, there's no spiritual character. There's no spiritual muscle. It's all mouth to make an impression. That scares me. See, these guys, these guys that are all mouth, oh, we did this in your name, we did this in your name, we did this in your name, uh-huh. They didn't take their vitamins. They did in 2 Peter 1. So let's go back to 2 Peter 1 and let's see what we've got here. My office, we built, my study is above our garage. And um, so I, gotta, I walk up 22 steps to get to my study, which down the road might be a challenge. But so far, so good. The, these, uh, these vitamins are like, they're, they're connected. They're like a stair step. You know, a lot of times when you're training for a race, you'll, you'll, run, you'll run the bleachers. You remember, remember football? You guys ever run the bleachers? They ever send you up to run the bleachers? <laughs> okay, that's what you got here. There are character qualities here that we must add to our faith. The first one is virtue, which, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. Virtue is moral excellence. It's a moral energy. Because Christ is now in you, what you want to do is not live for yourself. You want to live for him and for others. When Jesus comes into our lives, before he comes in, we're the king of our lives. It's all about us. We're selfish. We're just flat out stinking selfish. When he comes into our lives, what he wants to do is he wants to turn us into servants. That's what he was. So what, what virtue is here in the context, moral excellence, moral energy is for doing, here's how I'd summarize, it's, it's to do the next right thing. When Christ comes into your life, you don't want to do the next wrong thing, you want to do the next right thing. So what's the next right thing? I don't know. 
Maybe that gentleman at the parking lot at Kroger is having a hard time getting out of his car and you can see he's got some physical, maybe you walk over there and help him. That's the next right thing. That's what Jesus would do. Maybe uh, you change a diaper. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. It's not, it's not being in the spotlight. It's not seeking the spotlight. It's what you do with nobody else around except Jesus. You just do the next right thing. You want virtue. But then, it's just not virtue, but then what you've got is knowledge. And once again, this is to your virtue, add knowledge, because you want to grow in the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. You want to grow in your faith, so this is growing in the knowledge of Jesus. And, and the more you grow in the knowledge of Jesus, see, this is where you know it's real, and this is where you know he can be trusted. So this morning, I had to send an email, and I'd been thinking about this email for two days, because it was delicate and it had to be handled really with great discernment. And I prayed about that for two days and I sent it. And I got a call back within five minutes, positive. This was about a situation that was a mess. But because I got the call, as a result of that, well, what if this step and what if that step? I'll call you back. And then, yes, and then because of that, two more steps. Wow. I've been asking God to lead me for 48 hours. And in about 15 minutes, boom, 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 boom. And there was clarity to a mess because he was at work. You know, that's the greatest thing in the world to see him work. Is it all fixed? No. But five critical little steps were taken. That's the thrill of knowing Christ. He's in my life. He's active. He just wants me to call on him. Jesus, help me. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. He'll help you. I got to walk into that meeting with my boss and I know it's not going to, I need your wisdom. It shall be given to you in that hour what you shall say. He'll give it to you. You watch it. Just watch it. He, lo he loves to save his people. He loves it. To knowledge, you had self-control. One commentator says, which is the restraint of one's emotions, impulses, or desires. In both Jewish and Christian writings, this quality is commonly associated with refraining from certain behaviors, especially illicit sexual activity. It can be any kind of impulse, emotional, anger, it can be anything. But often in scripture, it's used for self-control in regard to sexual activity. Uh, Don Carson is a tremendous... Uh, biblical scholar, one of the founders of the Gospel Coalition. I found this article several weeks ago and I've been saving it. And the article is titled, Three Questions D.A. Carson Asks Potential Apostates. What's an apostate? It's someone who walks away from the faith. You say, well, why would you bring that up? Well, because in just a minute, we're gonna look at verse 10. And he tells us that if we put these spiritual vitamins together, it's one of the ways that you can have assurance of your faith that you are really saved and you are going to heaven. Verse eight, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not like the guys in Matthew seven. You're not just mouth but it's in your heart. But see, apostates would be the guys in Matthew 7. Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. So uh, he talks about new Christians that are struggling in their faith. You handle them differently than you would somebody else. 
So he'll ask them, so tell me what you're reading. Well, I read this book by one of these, by Richard Dawkins, and about this, and the scriptures are Bart Ehrman, and the scriptures can't be trusted. Okay, well, that makes sense, sure. But you know, there are those who have worked on those very same issues and have completely different answers. In fact, have answered all of the, graves, the difficulties he's raised. Did I share those with you? Sure. Read these. They'll help you. Okay. So his first question will be, uh, what's your reading been like in the last two years? What are you reading? Second question. And he says, this is what he'll ask um, when he's dealing with someone who's not a new believer, but he says, at some point you'll, you'll meet someone who comes along who has been a Christian for a long time, a loving and devoted father and husband. They've taught Sunday school. They've served in the church and leadership. They're successful in business. And then he comes in and says, Pastor, I found another woman. I want to marry her. I'm going to divorce my wife and leave my kids. Believe me, this happened a lot. Carson says, so the question I ask, who are you sleeping with other than your wife? And he's got a great response that even if they haven't been doing something like that, guilt comes over their faces almost always. If not about that, about something else. In other words, one of the things that can destroy faith is sin. Unconfessed, buried, suppressed sin. There's no joy in the Lord. There's no sense to, to it all anymore. There's an, there's an unacknowledged guilty feeling because, in fact, there is real moral guilt. Are you covering sin? Third question. When was the last time you read your Bible? And by the way, when did you stop praying? Because you see, an apostate is someone who was walking away from the faith. Why are they walking away from the faith? Because they are not adding to their faith this list of things that Peter just gave us. Which leads me to the fifth thing. The, the fifth principle here is, and this is an important one. Peter instructs us in verse 10 that practice makes progress, not perfection. We're not going to be perfect on this earth. Verse 10 says, therefore, and by the way, I'm going to go back to 9. He says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. The, the, the idea is willfully short-sighted. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, now watch this. Watch this. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. You know what he's saying? Make sure you know Christ. Well, don't you believe in eternal security? Well, yeah, absolutely. I believe in eternally security for those who are eternally secure. And who are those who are eternally secure? The sheep that belong to Jesus. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Don't forget that. You know what Jesus said, one of the primary characteristics of his sheep? They follow him. Who are you following? Who's first in your life? Well, I understood. You don't understand. No, I do understand what you're telling me. But do you understand John 10? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So if someone is following this, and they're following that, and they're following that, you can be all mouth as much as you want, but you have absolutely no assurance that you're saved if you're living and disregarding what is in this text. You're not adding moral excellence. You're not adding the knowledge of Christ. You're not adding these different things. How, you can't be certain. You're duping yourself. Now, does the Lord want us to have an assurance of salvation? Absolutely. I, I was raised in a church where you, it was taught you couldn't have assurance of salvation. It's there. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. There you go. My Father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of his hand.
You can know for sure. You can know for certain. How can I know for certain? Once again, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Yeah, but see, but see Steve, I stumbled this week. We'll join the club. But see, it's not perfection. It's not perfection. What you should be seeing is progress. Would your wife say there's a difference between how you lived 10 years ago and how you live now? Five years ago? That's progress. We all fall. You know, the great thing about the Christian life and the great thing about Jesus, you've seen it in the Olympics. They're running a long race and somebody will trip and fall and get injured. They've, I mean, they literally fall. And they're treated, and then, but you've seen them get up and hobble. You don't have to be perfect to finish strong. You just have to acknowledge that you've fallen. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you get back in the race, and you finish. And, and if you're too weak and you're too busted up, he'll carry you over the finish line. Yeah, we fail. But he strengthens and establishes us. And gets us across the finish line. That's the gospel. And there's great hope. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word, for the truth of your word. You know us so well. You know our brokenness. You know our sinfulness. You know our tendencies. But if we'll call on you from our heart and we seek you, then Lord, you know, you're, you're not expecting us to work on these virtues 24-7. Not everyone goes to seminary and studies the languages and all that stuff. We got jobs. We got responsibilities. And you know that. You just want us in the quietness of our heart. Say, Jesus, help me here. I need you. Give me wisdom how to respond here to my wife. Give me wisdom how to respond to this situation. You'll be there for us. What a great Savior you are. We pray these things in your name. Amen.